Hello, I'm your host, Angelina Janis, and this is the CX Cast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the CX Cast. I'm by myself today. Martin had more important things to do, apparently, but not really ever by myself because I always bring a guest on to keep me company. AJ Joplin, senior analyst on the CX team, has come back due to popular demand after her workshop episode. You wanted more details. So AJ, thanks for coming with more details. Of course, we didn't get to chat long enough last time. No, we didn't. And actually, I was listening back on that episode and laughing a little bit because we were asking you questions all over the place. Like (laughs) early on, tell me about how to get a stakeholder on board. Later on, okay, where do we start? So there were a few places to dig deeper, and one in particular were the actual workshop activities themselves. Like, how do we plan them, create them, design them? You're going to have a bunch of people show up, sometimes in a physical room, and the most concrete thing that you can think of is the catering. Other than that, I mean, it's wide open, and no one wants it to be a flop. So maybe we could just start with the basic question of, How do you even think about designing workshop activities? Okay. So when we're talking about how to design a workshop, I like to think about this divergence and convergence. It's not a metaphor. It's not an analogy. It's just something that we have to do in workshops, right? And it's interesting that you phrased your question and the setup in the way that you did, because our last episode, we kind of went into this divergent space and we probably wouldn't have landed on these topics today if we didn't spend time doing that. That was the first time we talked about workshopping and facilitation. And so there were lots of things that we could potentially explore future episodes, right? Like we are today. So That is a key design principle in any workshop is to think about how you're going to get people to spend enough time diverging on activities and thinking so that they can properly converge through a healthy set of options, right? If we don't diverge, then we're not going to get to a place of quality ever in anything, even when we're designing things. So there's a couple levels. First of all, systems thinking. A good way to think about a good quality system is stars and constellations, right? So a workshop is a star and a constellation of activities that we'll engage in as we're designing products or services or trying to solve any kind of problem. So that's one level. And now we're into the workshop, right? And now overall in the workshop, I need people to spend time going wide so that they can go narrow and doing that several times often, right? Because it's an iterative refinement of our understanding. That's what a workshop is facilitating, right? So There's a really, I think it's a popular framework amongst a lot of facilitators and uh, not sponsored, (laughs) but call us if you want to sponsor the CX cast. Just kidding. Um, There's a book called The Workshopper Playbook by Jonathan Courtney, and they have a design agency. Well, they started out as a design agency in Germany. And I love the way that they frame up what you have to think about when you're designing a workshop. There are four phases and they all start with the letter C. So that's really helpful, right? Collect, choose, create, and then commit. Any workshop is about spending time collecting data from the participants that are there in the room, right? Perspectives, collecting, so that we can then start to choose where we might want to focus, what we might want to pursue, so that we can create potential solutions and then commit to taking those actions forward. So that's a good framework for the majority of workshops. Almost every workshop falls into that framework. Super helpful. Now, at this broader level, how am I going to design this workshop? 
within that collect phase, that choose phase, that create phase, and then commit phase, we can do lots of things. Let's jump into the middle of that framework. If I was to design a create activity, I would want to allow people to contribute from our shared pool of understanding in their brains. I would want them to contribute ideas, perspectives based on the data we collected earlier so that we can then choose from those potential solutions in a very healthy, productive way. It's so interesting because what you're doing is basically making sense of things that people do without really knowing why we do them. Collect reminds me so much of how in consulting we would talk about creating a straw man or a hypothesis or any of those other things where we're just kind of putting the bare bones together so people can fill it in. Am I, am I thinking of this correctly? Or just a validation workshop, I suppose. Yeah. But- I think you're thinking about it correctly. But what often happens is that we kind of intuitively, based on our level of experience, will say, let's do a straw man because we are recognizing where we are in this creation process based on our experience. But if we don't spend time really articulating why we think it's time for a straw man, (laughs) then we're Mm -hmm. probably going to get it wrong. And then a lot of people without proper experience and without spending time thinking about how you go about making decisions, they will do a straw man based on what? no data. They've collected nothing. They've fed nothing into this system that would feed a really appropriate straw man. Appropriate meaning correct, meaning in line with the problems that we're trying to solve. I love that. And then the other thing, I mean, when you talk about create, we talked a lot in the first episode about producing an artifact, which is, it's like behavioral scientist speak, really, that we were putting on things. Again, we were expanding and thinking broad, but create, it becomes, okay, you're not just producing an artifact to produce an artifact and say, hey, we did something. We're creating something. And I like that it goes from create to commit because I'm guessing one of the twists and turns to planning a workshop here is don't create something you can't commit to. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. So (laughs) let's talk about that. There's this term we like to use in design, and it's called fidelity, right? High fidelity, low fidelity. And this correlates to how cooked, how done, how informed something is, right? So if we were to come up with an idea in a workshop about how we might solve a potential problem that we're working on, that fidelity of that idea is probably pretty low, right? It might be well-informed, but it's probably pretty low. It could be on a sticky note. It could be on a piece of paper, right? Very seldom in a workshop do we actually like build a clickable prototype or something, right? That would be probably a much longer workshop or phase two of a workshop, right? We could come back and look at things, but that's okay. The point is to drive alignment in a workshop. What are we going to work on after this workshop? If you do get way, way, way into the weeds with an idea during a workshop, then you're probably not going to hit the nail on the head the first time. And we need to accept that. That's why fidelity is important. That's why accepting an iterative process is important. This is our initial understanding. We're on the same page. This is the direction that we're charging in. We're going to commit to further exploration. That's what we're committing to, furthering an idea, taking it forward, and then asking people to commit to coming back to the group and sharing what they've learned. Hmm, I gotcha. Well, there's lots of ways to choose and create. How do you get creative with your choosing and creating? (laughs) So there are lots of brainstorming activities that are out there. I think that 
the creation process, the brainstorming process is probably the most popular thing that we think of when we think about a workshop. So everything down to like crazy eights or big ideas or body storming. Sometimes we have groups actually present <laughs> like through a skit, a potential solution. Uh, we can create storyboards to help an idea get really fleshed out and to tell the story, which I love. But whatever you're doing in the creation part of your workshop, you should go through multiple rounds. One of my favorite ideas is, and I, we use this a lot when I was at USAA, is we helped people think about analogous experiences, meaning we could hand out these cards to people for different popular businesses or products that people know a lot about. And then we could say, if we were to solve our problem like XYZ company, what would we do? And that's not a perfect science, right? What it's doing is it's giving your brain somewhere to jump off from because the creation process, the ideation process is sometimes uncomfortable for people. And depending on how bought in we are to a particular idea or a particular solution, we can struggle to create divergent ideas, right? It's hard to go, okay, this is the idea I have for how we might solve this right now, but I'm going to put this over here and I'm going to force my brain to think about alternative ways to solve this idea. So round one, get those ideas out. Usually these are the most obvious ones. When you go through that second round of ideation, that's when you start to get to the good stuff. And then even a third. So you can have ideas. What happens when you have an idea and then you say, okay, here, I'm going to give this to, to Jill to work on next. How would she build on your idea? Which is a great yes and principle. That's a big part of design thinking. It's a big part of collaborative work. To be able to build on the ideas of others, that's what we need more of in the world, personally. Again, we are out here trying to save the world as facilitators. I think we talked about that the last episode. At least that's how I feel. We're making the world a better place. So this second round of ideation, maybe give your idea to someone else to build on. Maybe take your idea into a 10-frame storyboard where you have to explain in greater detail what you meant when you made that little idea on a sticky. But multiple rounds of ideation is how you get to quality. Yeah. And there's something too about the way you do it. So if someone writes down an idea and passes the next person, you can also remove those power dynamics mm -hmm. and start to build on ideas that you don't know where they came from. And you're not worried about whether the boss wrote them down or the intern wrote them down yep. because the best ideas can come from anyone. Yeah. And that principle of democratization in a workshop is pretty key making diverse teams, diverse in level, people, all of the aspects and dimensions you can think of. Whenever I create teams inside of workshops, I do that because we need to learn from each other. Just using a methodology like a sticky note that I write on, I put on the wall, I do it silently. You know, this silent divergence in a workshop, making space for that's really important. Individually, we diverge as a team, but you've got to have a little bit of both if you want quality and if you want diverse perspectives, which is what makes ideas better. Why did you invite all these people to a workshop if you're just going to let one person do all the decision making and talking, right? That's silly. <laughs> yeah. And it's also super common. I've been in journey mapping workshops where it's, it's quote cross-functional, mm -hmm. but we're really just saying, okay, and what does this mean for your function? And what does this mean for your function? And that's not systems thinking. Mm -mm. We're not looking at how we impact each other through feedback loops to use systems thinking term. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, the, it seems like there's designing the activity, the thinking about the output. There's also designing it, thinking about the humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like thinking about when we're thinking about the humans, we're thinking about maybe the perspectives they already bring, maybe the needs they have during the workshop. 
tell me a little bit more about what you're thinking when you're saying you have to think about the humans. <laughs> I, uh, in my early years of being in workshops, mm -hmm. I realized that there were subject matter experts that could just walk in. And I think you mentioned dropping bombs last episode. It's, it's <laughs> real. Dynamite. It's so frustrating. <laughs> it's like mm. we sat through the beginning presentation where we learned the download about, we learned the collect and yeah. you just came in an hour late and dropped a bomb. It feels like if you design a workshop well, maybe you could prevent a little bit of the dysfunction. Yes, 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 yes. So dynamite people dropping bombs or dropping knowledge either way. <laughs> we need their involvement, although sometimes we're a little afraid of it. So when you design a workshop, a well-designed workshop has a beginning, middle and end kind of like a story, right? So when you're in the room with the workshop doing the work, that's the middle of the story. The beginning part is where I start to identify the people who are going to be in the room, you know, their level of dynamite <laughs> activity, potential dynamite explosiveness. And we want them to be invested in the outcomes, the end of the story, right? So it only makes sense that they understand things from the beginning. So what do they need in order to make this workshop really sing? They need to contribute. And that level of contribution sometimes is just being aware of what's happening, um, being asked for certain materials before the workshop so they can share with other people. Sometimes we may even want them to present some information for 10 minutes, but they need to understand why the workshop is happening and what the intended outcomes are so that they can contribute. Don't ignore them. <laughs> Make sure you invite them. And if they're not there, they need to be very well aware of what we're hoping to achieve and produce as a result of the workshop. So then that means you have to have them in the beginning involved in some way, shape or form. No, it makes <laughs> sense. And okay, be honest with me, how long did it take you to really hone the skills around creating these activities? Like should someone expect to create a totally new mm -hmm. workshop activity that has never been done before because it's they're trying to best meet objectives? Or is it like, borrow from what you already know. Last episode, for example, you mentioned a racy activity. I think a lot of people know what a racy is and are like, oh, okay, I could see how I could take something I already know and turn it into an activity I feel confident leading. It's a leading question, but I'm going to give it to you anyways. I know you can handle it, AJ. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I think you should always try to borrow from what already exists. I mean, methods are used by other people because they work, right? And we modify as needed, kind of like exercise, <laughs> modify as needed. And you can do that following certain principles. And you can definitely create new activities following basic principles, like what's a good prompt for the activity? Do people understand what the objective is of doing this activity? Is there enough divergence, enough convergence? And then what methods are you using to facilitate that? When you need people to diverge, are you going to ask them to do something silently for five minutes and then can share that with the group? And then the group can see what the group has made through playbacks, for example. And then when you're converging, are you going to use dot voting? Are you going to use a two by two prioritization grid to get people to converge? Mm -hmm. Are you going to ask them to do something like create the storyboard and then use their storyboard to compare to others and then create one larger storyboard? So they have a shared story as a team. 
there are just techniques that you can use to create any new activity. I'm doing it right now for a client and we had conversations and interviews and we're trying to understand what the real problem is so we can get the right jumping off point in the workshop so we can create and design the right kinds of activities because we kind of know what the outcomes are. But understanding the inputs are what helps you really refine what these outcomes are going to be so you can set expectations for where people are going. So you can do it. (laughs) I love that. And revealing that even the pros iterate on the approach Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. through their own lines of inquiry. Yes. And how do you know that the activities were a success? If you're able to achieve your outcomes. If people were able to come into alignment, and I I think sometimes you kind of get into like becoming kind of a pro facilitator when you're able to like move on the fly, but anybody can become a pro facilitator pretty quickly if you remember those principles of divergence, convergence, and being able to point people to the goals, like bringing people back to the goals. This was our intended outcome for this workshop to achieve these things. This conversation seems like it's taking us in a different direction. And, you know, a pro facilitator could on the fly go, is that really what we want to do? If so, we can take things in a different direction. But that's that's getting into the Wild West a little bit. <laughs> you can protect yourself from those kinds of things whenever you have better inputs going in. Maybe you need to do a few more interviews with people or having conversations with more key stakeholders before a workshop when the stakes are really high. Mm-hmm. It just depends. But scope is important and sticking to it helps people feel more confident. And we can always have another workshop. That's the thing is you can always do another one. (laughs) Yeah. And also, it sounds like you'd have to be a little bit honest with yourself. Are you going to be able to, as the facilitator, stop someone from taking things off the tracks? They might be your own boss. Mm -hmm. They might be someone really important. And that's why probably it's okay to bring in someone else to be the facilitator, to be that person. It's so much less awkward when I interrupt a leader because he's not my leader. (laughs) And I know no one else is going to do it. And there are some talkers. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are. And if we want to get into what you can do (laughs) as a facilitator to bring the conversation back to where it's supposed to be or to politely stop conversation, I I think it is hearkening back to the outputs of the workshop. That's interesting. Thank you so much for saying that. Let's put that in the parking lot, which is a activity I love to have. Like I'll put a big sticky note or on the whiteboard at the front of the room, I'll say this is the parking lot. Ideas, things we know we wanna follow up on that we can't spend time talking about. I will introduce the parking lot at the beginning of the workshop and tell people to put things there. Write it down, we don't wanna forget. And so this is more about your body language and knowing where you're going to put people whenever they do things like this. So say someone is rambling. I will often physically step towards them and maybe kind of put my hand down a little bit and say, I'm going to have to stop you here because we have an agenda, a schedule that we have to stick to, but I don't want to lose what you're saying. Let's put it in the parking lot. So you have effectively stopped this train. (laughs) And you've acknowledged that what they're saying is worth hearing. It just can't be heard right now. And that's okay. And we have to agree on those things. If you have a workshop with people that you feel like are going to be potentially talkers like that, say those things at the beginning. Put it on a slide at the beginning of the workshop. I know we got a lot of chatty people in here. We all know ourselves. So we are going to agree that we're not going to chat when we don't need to chat. We are (laughs) going to agree that we're going to try our best to stay on 
topic. And what's more is that we are going to allow our facilitator to stop us when we feel ourselves spinning a little bit out of control. We're all really passionate about this topic. We all really want to solve this problem, but we have to do it within the constraints of the workshop that we've designed. Can we agree to that and create a bit of a social contract moment? So hot tips. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, bringing it back to consensus. That's amazing. It's, it's cool to start to apply even just one or two of the principles you're offering and just see how it helps frame up and make the workshop feel cohesive and purposeful. Just an endless well of wisdom, AJ. I've enjoyed this conversation. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Are we going to stop it here? I don't know. What do the people want? I, I think we should ask the people if they could write in cxcast at forester.com or message me on LinkedIn or message AJ <laughs> or Martin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Message Martin. Let's delegate. Because he missed this one. <laughs> Let's delegate that. And just reach out for more workshop questions. We'd love to start a dialogue and AJ's got more to share. I sense. Thank you. Yes, I do. I could talk about it all day long. Awesome. Until next time. And thank you to producers Ellie and Julia, without whom none of this would happen. If you want to get in touch, email us at cxcast at forester.com. As always, you can find us at forester.com or on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time for more CX Insights. Oh, 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 oh,